Oh, good. I can just put that at the end of the episode. I don't have to go download an MP3. (laughs) This will be the most alienating intro yet. Yeah. So for listeners who have not figured it out yet, Seth has contracted the novel coronavirus, which you may have heard about on the news. It's in the news. But he's going to trudge ahead anyways, because that's what we do. Yeah. And friendship will make me forget. You may have gotten it from one or both of these movies. Yeah. Or the Tears for Fears concert I went to. Oh, man. What a a cool place to get COVID from. Yeah, me and all the dancing boomers. (laughs) (laughs) It was cool. And that that was a good show. You had to have been the least at-risk person in the entire audience. They did play Mad World, though. That was pretty tight. Oh, should we um, should we cheer Seth up before we start by playing him the newest MP3 on the soundboard? Mm, from- the newest drop <laughs> from the Possession episode. When we were on vacation, Seth, we listened to this probably 10 times a day. Yeah, at least. <laughs> we were talking about Heinrich. Who is he? Does he fuck you better? <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Unwatchables, the film podcast where we take in your tired, your poor, your huddled masses, the wretched cinematic refuse of your teeming shore. I am Mark Dottavio. Wow, where did that come from? That was wild. This is this is also Thank you. the other person, Seth Troyer. And today's episode is all things Rob Zombie, the musician turned filmmaker with at least two horror movies that have only grown in cult status over the years. Those films are 2005's brutally disgusting horror western The Devil's Rejects and the 2009 sequel to his own remake of Halloween, Halloween 2. Barf bags not included. Lord, I can't change. I can't stop doing it. We're going to start with the full seven-minute rendition of Freebird, mm-hmm. which is clearly the only reason that Zombie got into filmmaking was so he could set a scene to the entire song at the end of one of his movies. I mean, spoiler, that's the best part of this one. <laughs> Skip to the end. It's pretty badass scene. Well, so, yeah, let's talk about Rob Zombie a little bit. Before we get into this, uh, I think he's tailor-made for this podcast because he's a connoisseur of all things disgusting and blood and sweat and grime soaked and uh, he wants you to he wants you to cringe. Yeah, he's very much one of those boys who was probably out there like picking up spiders and throwing them at you and he was like, "It's not even scary. I don't know why you're scared. I don't know why. I think it's pretty. Why is it, it's not gross?" <laughs> yeah, he's a musician. Isn't he not, is he from, he's from like Massachusetts or something, which I found really funny. Yeah, you. I think maybe you have to be Midwestern to have this kind of obsession with these things. I guess, but I figure you have to be like 
he's he's always like from the acting like he's from the hard south or something or from an evil part of California. But I just found it funny this Massachusetts. I think the really messed up people are the ones who come from Massachusetts and then end up in one of those places in the south, and they're they're obsessed with it. Weird. And, you know, we've talked about some horror movies so far on this podcast, but they've mainly been the really, like, art house pretentious kind, like Possession or Antichrist. I think that these are our first just dyed-in-the-wool horror movies, just hack em up slashers that a general audiences would go see. Yeah, I don't know why it took us so long. And I think this is a good place to start. Because Rob Zombie, he started with the band White Zombie and went solo after that. He's a musician, still is a musician, but he was always first and foremost, I think, a horror buff. And I think that's why he has this kind of diehard cult of fans around him, because he clearly is obsessive, kind of in a cinephile way about horror movies. And you can tell that from the references in his films and the things that he's trying to replicate, and especially in the casting. So we'll talk about that in a lot of these movies coming up where he, he'll reach into the horror past and with faces that you'll recognize from, you know, lesser known horror movies. And I think that's kind of a neat thing about him. Yeah. And I got to say, you got to turn off this podcast and uh, whatever you say about the rest of his discography, the first White Zombie album, it just rips. It just rips real hard. It's really disgusting and awesome. Um. And uh, that's it for me. I'll leave. That's okay, good. Podcast. Yeah, I'm not really familiar with his music, so I'm glad that you had something to say about that. You know, he's got the Matrix song, burn through the witches and then into the ditches and, you know, that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right, that's right. But they all have this, like, his shtick is that he's obsessed with horror. All his, like, I think he directed a bunch of his own music videos, which are really wild and Again, like he has such a visual eye, like super over the top, like strobe lights and weird sets and costumes and stuff. And always tinged with a little bit of humor, which I think sometimes is a saving grace. And sometimes it it, like whether it's in his movies or music is what makes things a little too like, I don't know, it gets in his way. Uh, which I would argue that's one of my biggest problems with Devil's Rejects and like all of his filmography is that just like, I don't know. I, I think Rob Zombie's really not very funny and he's constantly trying to act like he's got some really good jokes, got some great screenwriting quips to throw into these conversations. And when has anybody ever laughed at these? It's just, it's just the most god-awful line. I think we're on the same page about that, so we'll definitely get into that. And bad timing, all of it. Oh, my God. And uh, he's kind of one of those guys where you see one of his movies, and to an extent, you've kind of seen them all. They're very much of a piece. You can tell that they are written by the same person and directed by the same person. And it all started back in 2000 with his debut, which was House of a Thousand Corpses. And... He had been trying to make a movie for a long time. And like you said, Seth, he has his stage show is all full of horror imagery. And I believe that he was helping create some kind of a horror, like attraction at Universal Studios when he got the idea for House of a Thousand Corpses. And it feels like he brings that aesthetic to everything. And 
there is kind of a carnival, like fun house quality, I think, to a lot of his movies, but especially House of a Thousand Corpses, which I say 2000, which was when it was filmed, but it was not released until 2003 because he was getting into this this whole back and forth with his movie studio who was afraid it was going to get an NC-17 and it was just going too extreme. And it took him a while to actually reacquire the rights for himself. And he eventually got a release through Lionsgate. So I was kind of young when that first all came out, but I do remember reading about when is this Rob Zombie movie going to come out? And is it so extreme that they couldn't even, you know, the distributor wanted to just dump it and shelve it. But it did come out in 2003, and I think have – you, you, have you seen that, Seth? Yeah, wow, that's some killer hype. How can anyone resist, like, yeah. back in the day? And I think it tells you everything you need to know. Like, everything for his career is right there in that first movie. And yeah. I, I think the best way to split it up is, on one hand, he is singularly obsessed with one movie in particular, which is the Texas Chainsaw Massacre – and a little more broadly with other 70s horror movies, maybe a little Hills Have Eyes. Manson is a big thing with him. Like yeah. Every single one of his movies, it feels like there's some sort of obsession with the Manson family and that crime or like, yeah, the death of the 60s dream or something like that. He's real obsessed with that. For sure. And, you know, lots of Southern rock, but just generally the setting is usually Southern or at least replicating the look and feel of that with lots of hillbillies. Uh, he likes, you know, the, these demented families and lots of lots of gore, lots of dismemberment, people wearing faces. It's very Texas Chainsaw, and whether he's doing his own original thing or he's doing a very different kind of slasher movie like Halloween, it feels like he's always still running it through that filter. Yeah, trashy people getting trashed. And smashed. Trailer chic, I want to call it. Oh, yeah. On the other hand, though, he does have this kind of music video aesthetic where he, he kind of throws in everything, especially in House of a Thousand Corpses, where it's all just split screen and rapid cutting and kaleidoscopic visuals and filters and colors. And uh, I, I think that, you know, that probably goes back to his background in music videos. But also, I think that he's just one of the more distinctive visual like horror filmmakers out there, especially when he's making these slasher movies. These are, whatever you think of them, I think they're some of the best looking horror films. Yeah, like that's how you shoot someone getting like just destroyed by a knifed wild man, you know? Like it's effective. Like in, in all his movies, there's at least like a couple of kills that are just like, if you want to get a real visceral reaction out of the audience from seeing, rather than just like a, a silly Jason, like slash to the throat, like the opposite is this, which is just like full octane, especially in Halloween 2, which we're going to talk about later, which the, the kills sometimes feel like someone getting hit by a car rather than a knife. You know, it's just so intense. Which, yeah, he teeters from the get-go on House of a Thousand Corpses and Devil's Rejects on this sort of, is it, it's, and it can be hard to figure out which one he's doing, is it borderline, like, silly and kitschy? Or is he going for this, like, real brutal, like, no, I want to disturb you and, like, 
reach into your soul a little bit, which he does at certain moments, I think, in Devil's Rejects for sure. It just uh, sometimes feels uneven to me. I think you've you've touched on the central tension of his entire filmography, which is on one hand, there's a real tongue-in-cheek kind of feel to everything where there's lots of characters who are just silly caricatures. There's lots of sick humor. Um, very The stylization is very heightened. There's a, a sense almost of a remove that he's commenting on these things a little bit that you know, he wears his influences on his sleeve and there is kind of a, a silliness and a perversity to it. And then on the other hand, he goes hard into the sadism and the brutality and sexual violence in ways that make you uncomfortable and are often very hard to watch. And those things too, you know, being side by side like that is always going to vary from movie to movie. How well do you respond to that or how well it works? You know, is he being frivolous or is he really trying to push us to feel pain because these are not easy watches. Even his tamer films are not. Right. Where like House of a Thousand Corpses feels more the the other way, where it is just like more or less all the way into just like gross out, just absurdism. With Devil's Rejects, he is venturing into a place where he's trying to create this family that are sort of based off the Texas Chainsaw family, right? But they're a little bit more, maybe a little bit more fleshed out, maybe a little, well, I don't want to say less extreme. They're still pretty damn extreme uh, because they are sadists. They are like, there's there's the brother who looks a lot like Rob Zombie, and our introduction to him is him sleeping with a dead woman, uh, basically, in his bed. And then there's Sherry Moon, who is Rob Zombie's wife, who is in all his movies and is always like a big part of the movie and lots always getting naked and getting crazy in the movies. Um, And yeah, she's like also like this crazy sadist. There's the uh, big tall brother also who this movie was dedicated to. Yeah, Tiny. Tiny. Yeah who is like the leather face of this family and is actually like over seven feet tall in real life. And then there's grandpa or daddy, who's the clown. Captain Spaulding. But they're all like, he's trying to make them, I'm trying to get you to get your guard down to like them kind of. Like the movie feels very much, and that's part of the twisted nature of the movie. It feels very much that it is trying to it's like being made by someone who is cheering on the killers rather than the authorities or anyone like the the victims are trying to like save anyone. It's all about like kind of seeing these people as like kind of the, the cool people in the movie, even though they're all like horrible murderous rapists. Yeah, I think that's the main difference between the two movies where House of a Thousand Corpses kind of takes a more standard view of we're following a bunch of pretty standard personality-free teenagers. We start with them and then eventually end up where we meet the killers. 
But I think it's clear, even in that movie, that Rob Zombie is way more interested in the villains than the victims. Like, that's where his his interest lies. And The Devil's Rejects basically runs with that idea. But I should say that we meet most of these people, like you said, in House of a Thousand Corpses. So even though you could definitely watch it without seeing corpses, uh, that is the film where we first meet, you mentioned uh, Otis, played by Bill Mosley, who... Uh, Horror buffs will probably know from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2 as Chop Top. And uh, you said his wife, Sherry Moon Zombie, is playing Baby. I think their relationship's a little nebulous, like maybe they're all siblings. It seemed a little unclear to me, at least at first. Uh, But then we do have uh, Mother Firefly, who's played by Karen Black in the first film and is replaced by Leslie Easterbrook for The Devil's Rejects, uh, who's... She's good, but I, it is a shame to kind of lose Karen Black because that's another person who brings a lot of like film history with her. And then you mentioned Captain Spaulding, the clown, who I think is probably the most memorable character from the whole series, played by Sid Hag, uh, that you meet in the first film and becomes a lot more central in this one, uh, who's just this vulgar, uh, sometimes kind of funny clown. I think if anyone gets closest to selling the dark perverted humor it's probably some of his stuff and i i don't know that baby starts calling him daddy in the second one so i guess we're supposed to assume he really is like the father but he doesn't live with them he just operates this sideshow attraction and kind of is related to them somehow and in the first film you're not even sure if he's totally a bad guy or not until the end but anyways (laughs) and this takes place in the 70s actually it's set in 1978 which was the year that halloween came out so Another connection there. But now we get to The Devil's Rejects, which is weird. It almost doesn't feel like a sequel so much as like a spinoff or something. Doesn't it feel that way? Like these are movies do have completely different feels to them. Even opening up the genre, this has more of like an outlaw on the run or even action movie kind of feel along with the horror right from the opening. Yeah, it feels way less carnival, way less haunted house. And way more, yeah, it feels like a outlaw, almost cowboy movie or something that is just constantly acting like it's not what it is, which is this horrible, murderous rampage. It Like the music and the way things are given to you in the story, it's constantly trying to trick you or something into thinking that, yeah, like these are, this is just like, some wronged outlaws, you know? It's just, you know, we're all like these outlaws. They're, you know, we just want to be free. And then you have to, like, keep on reminding yourself uh, that, no, th- these guys kill people and fuck the dead bodies. It's not just like, oh, they they stole some money from a bank or something. Like, you're used to in this sort of movie. It's like, no, it's like they are demonic monsters. Yeah, and we start right away focusing on them. They're the protagonists of this movie. And the very first scene is this siege with the cops coming out to their compound where there's just almost literally a house of a thousand corpses. I think they say they find like 70 or something bodies in it. And there's just this big shootout with the cops. So already this is more about like gunfights and stuff in the beginning and does have that kind of Western feel. You know, 70 corpses is not a 1,000, so maybe they aren't so bad. Yeah, you know, we've been underestimating them, I think. But then the mom gets arrested. Everybody else escapes, right? And there's, like, this sort of 
is he religious? The cop that's after them, that they killed his brother or whatever, and he's really like hell bent on revenge on them. And he's sort of painted as a villain, and he is like extreme and, you know, like this big, mean, bending the law and breaking the law kind of cop, which is interesting to see that sort of shift that you're constantly dealing with, which again is like every time I look over here, there's an evil cop doing evil shit. And then every time I go back to the quote unquote heroes, they're sexually assaulting people in hotel rooms and shooting people. So it is like, where do, where do I turn? Where do I turn, Rob? Yeah, I think that's the main thing to figure out with this movie. Because with this sheriff character uh, who's played by William Forsyth, another guy who goes way back with all kinds of villain roles, the main arc is him trying to get revenge and kill everyone in this family because they killed his brother in the previous film. And he's made to be just as hard-assed and sadistic and anything goes as them, really. And so you have this strange dynamic where we're following these killers like they're the main characters, even though we see them do things that are incredibly horrific uh, and not fun at all. And on the same side, then we have this sheriff who I think Zombie is trying to challenge us to figure out who to identify with or kind of giving us the whole, you know, are is this guy any better than them because of his his tactics and his drive and his vengeance? And I remember at the time when this came out, you know, in 2005, in this, you know, newly like post 9-11 going into Iraq kind of thing. This got a lot of credit, I think a little too much credit for being kind of a commentary on the whole, you know, use of torture and vengeance, you know, Patriot Act stuff in the kind of the way like the show 24 was doing at the time. People were kind of ascribing that meaning to this. I could totally see it. I mean, even down to the guns of glory going out in a blaze of glory sort of feeling to the whole thing, like give me freedom or give me death, uh, very Confederate kind of feeling to this movie. Very like, this is American. This is what America is all about kind of thing, which is like extreme freedom, freedom to the like furthest length where I can absolutely indulge whatever comes that comes into my mind and do whatever I want with these guns and go against authority if they think that you know I can't do whatever the fuck I want to do it does and again with Freebird and Leonard Skinner and stuff playing in the background it it's hard not to imagine this in the wrong hands as much as I don't want to be that guy it's hard not to think of some grandpa like watching this and being like hell yeah brother i do what i want (laughs) yeah but do you think seth that it lands on a particular perspective about who it's wanting you to root for because it's hard for me to identify with anybody in this from the sheriff to the family uh really anybody who isn't one of the terrified victims it was hard for me to really get a rooting interest or even be particularly interested one way or the other is like what happens to them. Yeah. And I think what you're saying is what I felt as far as Rob having any sort of direction. I think that's sort of like his problem is like, he's just kind of irresponsible with that and doesn't really give a shit. It seems like for a second, like he wakes up in the morning, goes to like make a movie 
and he's like got a got a little bit of a message and he's trying to get somewhere with it and then like an hour later he's just like but fuck it you know like let's just fucking balls to the walls and be be crazy and who gives a shit you know it keeps it keeps on it's, it's like zigzaggy for me in a lot of his stuff that it seems like he's getting at something for a second and then he's got to like turn the camera at something just stupid or just frivolous which is fine but it makes it this sort of jarring experience sometimes where I kind of wish it was just one or the other. It's like anything that he comes up with or every single movie that he's done in the end is more about realizing just his kind of fetishes for this kind of stuff. You know, the kind of characters he wants to show, the kind of humor, the kind of violence. And I think that stuff does overtake anything, you know, thematic or anything else that you could take away from it. And this just kind of flirts with that, but... I do agree that it ends up on the side of it being uh, just the genre piece that he wants it to be. Yeah, part of it almost feels like, and and I kind of like it if I'm seeing it in this lens, um, that it feels almost like a John Waters sort of thing, where it is like this crew of people. It feels like they're probably having a a really good time on set. I imagine, like, this is Rob Zombie doing basically whatever he wants, uh, it feels like. Uh, and he's like bringing his friends and his wife is like the, one of the stars of the movie. So it feels like they're just like making this for themselves, which I appreciate that. Yeah. And that's why I think the first half of this movie is the most interesting or at least the most queasily compelling because you're constantly walking that tightrope and you always get the sense that this is a deliberate like, exploitation film, grindhouse movie that's leaning into that stuff. And there's the potential for some kind of subversive idea with that. I mean, let's talk about what actually happens in the movie. So after they take off on the run, you know, they eventually team up with Captain Spaulding. Um, it, it's basically just uh, Otis and Baby and then Captain Spaulding together. But I think the centerpiece of the film is them ending up at this motel where there's basically two couples who are part of a touring band, Banjo and Sullivan, and they take them hostage and torture and eventually kill all of them. And it takes up a lot of screen time. I think it's the most disturbing and upsetting part of the movie. And That's where we have to grapple with, okay, so far from what we've seen in this movie, we're pretty much on the side of these outlaws in an anti-hero kind of way. But when they take these people hostage, it's really no holds barred. And uh, one of the people is, one of the actors is Brian Pesane from the stand-up comic from the Sarah Silverman program. Which really took me out of it. Yeah. (laughs) And he's like not doing a great job. I'm just like, what is this? Yeah, not to be disrespectful or anything, but you really think that Rob Zombie was just trying to cast like weird-looking people and that that's the main reason that he was there. But he gets executed pretty quickly, and that just leaves these two couples. And one of them, the older woman from the older couple, is Priscilla Barnes, who comes from anyone who knows like 70s TV shows or Three's Company— I believe she was the one who replaced Suzanne Somers on Three's Company, and she was like the ditzy blonde on that show for a while and kind of a sex symbol. And here she is just going through torment in this. And, you know, they're they're held hostage, and there's a scene where 
Bill Mosley makes her come up and like take off all of her clothes and he basically sexually assaults her in front of her husband. And there's nothing fun there, right? No, no, no. It is such a rough scene. I will un I will I will unwatch this scene absolutely and uh I skimmed it for sure. I don't know. I had a hard time with the first part of this movie, honestly. I just felt like I instantly was so repulsed by it. It was instantly really hard for me. The second you're introduced to the one brother in the family and yeah, again, like he was fucking a corpse and I'm just instantly like, I just keep on thinking about it throughout this first part of the movie. I think maybe some viewers like they can just get into the grimy fun of it and keep going with it. But I just like was instantly just like so turned off by this movie and just not having a good time. And then the hotel scene comes, and I'm just like, uh, uh, uh. Also, like, they're not well-crafted scenes either, a lot of these. They're not, like, very original. It is just sort of rough for the sake of being rough. Yeah, there's a part where the younger woman wants to go to the bathroom, and a baby will only let her if she slaps the older woman and makes her do it, like, harder and harder and just those kind of really mean little details are all over the place. And in the meantime, Otis is taking the men out somewhere to dig up some guns and just kill them. And there's another kind of pretty mean-spirited scene where he, you know, the guy's trying to pray to God for his life and he tells he makes him plead to God and say, "Go ahead, if tell God to strike me down. And if he does, then great. Then your God's out there to save you." And he just starts pleading and he starts going, bless the bunnies, bless the little birds. It almost feels like it's mocking, like the movie is mocking him. And they all end up dead, every single one of them. Uh, he comes home with the face of the younger guy cut off and makes his wife, who's the only one left alive at that point, wear it. And they leave her alive. And when she's discovered by a maid, she goes running down the street hysterically and a truck hits her. And that's the end of all those characters. Thanks a lot. And from that point on, yeah, how do you feel spending time with these people? Because after that, the victims kind of dry up and it just becomes about the sheriff being a verse, you know, trailing these guys. And they hook up with a bunch of other people. That's typical Rob Zombie casting. The Devil's Rejects have these friends, ones played by Ken Faree from Dawn of the Dead and from Beyond. Again, a lot of like horror buffs will recognize him. Uh, we get Michael Berryman from The Hills Have Eyes. You know, he plays like the mutant in the original Hills Have Eyes. And in the meantime, the sheriff hooks up with Danny Trejo, you know, Machete himself. He's everywhere. <laughs> He's in all the movies. Yeah, especially Rob Zombie movies uh, and Diamond Dallas Page. And and they're the ones who are helping them, helping the sheriff find the fa the Firefly family. So we get a bunch of that. There's even a little cameo from PJ Souls from the original Halloween, who played Linda, like one of the few people who die in that original movie. She's like the mom. She's the mom that Captain Spaulding like punches and steals her car and freaks out her little kid. Wow, you're such a little quiz kid. And uh, well, I kept vaguely recognizing so many people and then I'd have to hop on, you know, Wikipedia 
and then say, wait, PJ Souls, I know that name. I'm impressed. So yeah, you you have all of that stuff. But then I, I feel like is troubling as the first part of this movie is, there's at least the kind of morbid fascination to what's going on and how you're going to process it. Whereas the second half is what got kind of tedious for me because it kind of revealed that these aren't very interesting characters and either the sheriff or the family. And so when they aren't, when there aren't victims that they're terrorizing, this second half of this, I think really started to drag for me. And since there is nobody to root for, it didn't feel challenging so much as I was just indifferent as to what happened to anybody. If anything, it might be a accidentally realistic take on these people that they're quite often, despite our fascination with these fuckers who do fucked up shit, that they're quite often pretty unoriginal and boring people and even just kind of dumb and lame. Uh, they're not always these like big brained characters like in like Heath Ledger's Joker or something like that, you know, quite often they are like in reality, just like these boring fuckers. And that is kind of what you feel in this. I do think I was more entertained at least by the second part of it because they are just like hanging out and it feel it gets back to that more house of a thousand corpses. Like they're the Adams family or something. They go and they hang out at this like sort of safe hold with this one guy who has a bunch of cocaine and they like party and stuff at his place. And I don't know, there's just some like levity. Maybe that's part of it that I was just begging for some levity for a second. <laughs> just relief. Yes. And yeah, it's still not great. It's still, yeah, pretty by the books, like silly lines and whatnot. Yeah, speaking of that, he has a very particular way of writing dialogue, which goes through all of his movies. And I'll get more into this when we talk about Halloween, because this is kind of a little more in his wheelhouse, at least. These are these outrageous caricatures in the South, and everybody is a pervert and making bad sex jokes just constantly. And, but it really – when he does that in all of his other movies with every character, no matter who they are, you start to realize, hmm, this guy's just not as good of a writer as he is a director. Again, it's just, like, not very funny. Like, I feel like if I was hanging out with him at a bar, he might be, like, he might be kind of fun and we'd talk about music and stuff and horror movies. But then he would start making jokes and they would just be, like, silly potty humor, like, low-hanging fruit. And I'd just not laugh, and he would just give me a punch on the shoulder and be like, oh, lighten up, man, come on. There's this really weird scene, too, where th they discover that these killers have named themselves after, like, Groucho Marx characters in Marx Brothers movies, and so they call in a film critic. Oh, yeah. Which is a really weird scene, because this guy comes in just doing a whole hammy shtick as this this um, pretentious film guy who pretty much looks like Gene Shalit with like this ridiculous mustache. <laughs> yeah. And he's as much of a character as anybody else, but he is so over the t top and just listing off movie trivia. And I wonder if that's Zombie's way of poking fun at critics in general who don't usually receive his movies very well. And if so, he couldn't be more obvious True. about it. I also think maybe he likes those movies. So yet again, it's like, I like this. I'm going to find a way of fitting it in, you know? Yeah, so that's pretty much the latter half of the film is just them partying. The sheriff 
eventually finds them and catches up with them, ties them up, and starts torturing them, which might be where Zombie is making some kind of a point or touching on something, maybe. I'm not totally sure if he's just assuming that we're all supposed to be appalled by what he's doing because he's stapling pictures of victims to them and hammering nails through their hands. And he really is taking on the role of the villain at that part, you know? Yeah, it really is just like, now I'm watching, yeah, now I'm just watching a murderous cop be mean to murderers. And it's just, it all like cancels out. And there's not even a big showdown, really. Tiny just shows up who hasn't been in the movie since the beginning and rescues them and breaks his neck. And that's it. Like He wasn't really going anywhere more with it than that. And they escape. Which I wanted more tiny in this movie. Yeah. And I'm sort of gifted that in Halloween too, since Michael Myers is like a huge behemoth person in it. And he's like super powerful. But I feel like tiny could have gotten like his Michael Myers moment where he just tears through a wall or something, you know, and now we're pretty much to the, are we to the end? Yeah, that's, we get our little climax slash ending afterwards. Which is a secret short film at the end of this movie <laughs> that actually kind of rocks. I really wish I could have just taken this away from the movie and just had it on my own. And I think it's so awesome. It's just free bird playing and three stupid outlaws with guns in their car and there's cops down the road. And if you could divorce it from the context, it would just be kind of badass because uh, they're like bleeding and they're like, you know what, here we go. And it's like really takes its time with its images and stuff. And it's like, again, going back to what Rob Zombie does quite often best, which is just music and imagery. And he's you like doing this slow motion, getting the guns ready to free bird and they're revving the engine and they burst through the cop. They're going for the cops and they're getting blasted and hammered by the cops and they're shooting right back to the end. And it's, uh, you, you don't know if they survive or not. Um, I know there is a sequel to this, so they survive, I guess, but I do like that it's kind of left ambiguous it just kind of fades out at a certain point in all the crazy chaos. And you're just like, they probably died, but who knows? Yeah, it seems unlikely that they could survive that unless a sequel was needed. And so once a sequel was needed, they weren't dead anymore. And however it ends up, it does seem like they're kind of going for a death by cop suicide almost, where they know they're not going to make it out. So they're just going to charge ahead, guns ablazing, and take the bullets. But it is weird because it intercuts it with these like home videos of them smiling and laughing like, oh, the good old times. Like this is Thelma and Louise or something at the end, which I don't know. Is he trying to do something almost uh, comedic or uh, like a, a takeoff on that kind of ending? Or did he just need to really pad this out as long as possible because Freebird is like a seven minute long song? <laughs> I really felt like this was drawn out a little bit more than it would have been if he wasn't just dead set on, I got the rights to this song and we're going to hear the whole thing and that's my ending. And I want it to be a music video. If this movie could have stuck with more of the absurdism, like cartoony level, I think the home video stuff would have worked a lot better and I would have been able to sort of like, okay, in the context of this weird little universe, it is kind of funny because it's like the 
a warped version of the Adams family. Like, oh, you're going to miss them. Those those poor guys getting shot up. But it's too gruesome. It's too brutal and real at certain points for me to indulge that. And I think the best defense I could come up with is that he's not making the violence palatable in a way that would encourage you to relate to these people or root for them that he doesn't shy away from how horrific it is. And you can question exactly what the motive is or what the end game is for all of that. But at the very least, he's not sugarcoating any of it to make the violence look attractive, at least when they're terrorizing that family. Or he's not trying to tip the scales so that it's easier for you to identify with the main characters. So there's maybe a kind of integrity to that even if it doesn't add up to much in the end? Maybe. It, my problem with him is he's also getting off on his base fantasies and obsessions maybe too much, maybe like in a sort of lame, edgy kid way where he's like, see, you're you're enjoying this a little, aren't you? Like, which, I, I mean, even in something like Funny Games, like Michael Haneke's Funny Games, I think is sort of, a little juvenile, in my opinion. Yeah, and frankly, this is no funny games. Well, no. So he doesn't have that kind of control over what he's doing. No. But that is that way that you are feeling like you're still seeing his id the whole time, I think, is part of what has made this a cult classic in some corners. That people who are most concerned with the whole auteur theory are seeing this as like the fullest, purest realization of his instincts and what he is obsessed with in exploitation films. And if you just like that kind of purity for its own sake, then I could see how you would see this as a masterpiece or his masterpiece. Uh, and that it definitely pushes buttons and feels dangerous. But yeah, I, for me, I would need a little bit more than that, or maybe that his pure vision is pretty limited in the end and doesn't have there's a low ceiling to it and he achieves it in parts of this movie and then frankly it's just too long and too much i guess it took 30 days to film this and i read that rob zombie originally had this idea where they were going to do the whole movie using only uh special effects that would have been available in the 70s but it like would have taken them way too long to do it they didn't have have time so in the end there's a lot of you know cgi stuff going on but they did use squibs for all the uh the gunfights so that's kind of cool see that could have been interesting because it could have made it more stylized and made it more like a natural born killers kind of feel it's not a movie that looks like there's a lot of cgi i'm imagining that it was probably one of those subtle things that you know helped it just look a little more like a knife was going in deep or bullets were flying i think it still feels pretty practical as far as the effects go or as close as you're going to get these days to something like that yeah, I guess I was just imagining like blatantly bad looking 70s stuff, but f for the sake of being like kitschy, like they're driving in a car and the background is clearly like a movie screen, stuff like that. Like Tarantino made it. Kind of interesting. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. It's almost like he's a lower rent Tarantino, Robert Rodriguez. Like he actually did direct a trailer that's one of the fake trailers in Grindhouse, which if 
you I guess you you can find them on the on like YouTube now. But when I saw it in the theater and it was actually the two movies together, they were joined by all these fake trailers. And that was right up his alley. And you could see that he might be into the same kind of things as those two directors with the, you know, the exaggerated film grain and cigarette burns and the film strips and all of that kind of stuff. But he doesn't push it that far. And he doesn't seem to be that much of a visionary. So let's assume that we can't just unwatch certain scenes. You got to take this whole movie or leave it. Would you unwatch The Devil's Rejects? Um, well, yeah, I guess so. I, I think it kind of sucked. And I would, did not have a good time. Even though, again, certain scenes, like hotel scene makes me want to watch this. The Freebird scene is very cool on its own, and I just wish I could have just watched that on YouTube and just said goodnight to the whole thing. Yeah, and I guess maybe for that same reason is why wouldn't necessarily unwatch it, but I'm not on the bandwagon. I this was the this went even further down in my estimation watching it this time, especially as it went on and on and on. And I'm definitely not going to be watching Three from Hell, the third installment in this, which. I haven't seen his last two movies because they both, even his diehard fans, seem to be pretty critical of them. And I kind of got off the zombie train after Lords of Salem. But I, it seems like that could only be more superfluous. Like this movie runs out of gas before it's over as far as what is interesting or um, compelling about these characters. And the idea of him bringing them back again for another belabored run around with them that nobody even has really been bothering to defend seems like just a bad, bad time, bad idea. And frankly, like he's so out of ideas at this point that he was just kind of being reduced to fan service. At least that's what's in my imagination anyways. Again, which was the thing that I always appreciate about him is just him doing whatever the fuck he wants, which I think he likes these characters a lot. And he likes this story, so he's going to do a sequel, whether you like it or not. But I'm not going to watch it. Me neither. We can get together and have an unwatch party for that. We'll just sit and stare at the wall and be like, wow, we're not watching Three from Hell right now. And then like an hour later, we'll be like, man, we're still not watching Three from Hell. Yeah, and it's just getting better as it doesn't go. (laughs) All right, so our next movie is... Eh, I don't like that intro. Eh. Let's take that one back. Yeah. All right, everyone. It's time. Was that good? That was great. That was great. <laughs> you, take, yeah. you take the rest. I'll take, I got it from here. You can go home now. Uh, but I think that the way we've described Rob Zombie so far, and those being his only two movies at the time, makes him kind of an odd choice to reboot a big franchise like Halloween. And I think the results are as odd as you would expect, too. The crazy results. Even more so than House of a Thousand Corpses, because, you know, Devil's Rejects is a sequel, and we're about to talk to, about Halloween 2, which is yet another sequel to a film that he just previously made. But I think we should spend a little more time talking about the original in this case, because unlike The Devil's Rejects, this is very much a sequel and continuation in the spirit of the previous film that he made. And everything is set up. I think it's important that you see the first one before the second one to get an idea of what's going on. 
unfortunately, it it does help. It it does kind of elevate the second one, at least for me. But the first one is, in my opinion, like real rough and pretty bad. It does not have the appreciation that Devil's Rejects or the sequel have. I think it, people were pretty hard on it at the time, even though it did make a lot of money, enough to greenlight a sequel. Yeah, I mean, how the first one, the first Rob Zombie remake works is it goes down, there's there's part one and there's part two to the first Halloween movie that Rob Zombie made. And there's stuff to hate about either one. There's people that really hate the first part and maybe can handle the second part. I'm on the camp that I find the first part at least a little interesting because it does this whole backstory of Michael Myers, which we had never seen before. A lot of people hate that because they want like Michael Myers to be this mystery, this like shadowy, like unknowable creature. And in some ways, I agree. In some ways, there's like some cheap things here where like he's framed as just like sort of like a another serial killer. Like he's seen as like a little kid killing animals and that's like a classic like Jeffrey Dahmer thing and whatnot. But in other ways, it is just a weird, like interesting prologue, I guess. Well, mainly because his father or stepfather. Stepfather. The stepfather is this awful guy and he's just always talking about beating Michael's mother, who is played by Sherry Moon Zombie, of course. Who is a stripper, of course. Any excuse to shoot his wife's ass crack. Every movie and finds we one. get to see it. Yep. He gets to film her, you know, stripping and stuff. But yeah, you're instantly like thrown into the scene of this horrible family at the beginning of the movie. And you're like, wow, OK, this is not your mother's Michael Myers. Not at all. But again, you don't really I would argue that it doesn't really illuminate very much because basically everything leads up to this moment where it's Halloween night. Michael isn't taken out on Halloween and he's just sitting there and he's bored and he f- flicks two little pieces of candy corn into the corner. And then he's like, well, I'll get the knife out, kill my dad, kill my sister. And her boyfriend. And her boyfriend. And it just sort of goes from there. Like, he's evil now. He is just fucking, he was always meant to be this, like, horrible, evil person. And don't forget, earlier that day, he killed his school bully in the woods with a shovel. I think that gets to the heart of the difference between this and the original Halloween is that, you know, in the original, we have this opening scene where little Michael just kills his sister and that's it. He's put away in this one. There's four people that he kills and that's already the whole body count of the original movie is or is like three or four. And he's just getting started in this opening scene which, again, gets to why Zombie is a strange choice for this, because it's not like any of the original Halloween sequels or franchise had any better of a grasp on what made the original so great. Like, from the get-go, from Halloween 2, the first Halloween 2 from the 80s, immediately starts giving us explanations. That's where the whole thing that he's actually Laurie Strode's Uh, brother is introduced and they all up the body count and the gore. So, I mean, that's nothing new for the series, but 
if we're talking about this being a remake of the original, that that movie is just completely removed from Rob Zombie's sensibility. It's this minimalist exercise in just slow burning dread and suggestion. Uh, at least a third of it takes place in broad daylight, and it's just the the shape as he uh, Michael Myers is called in the script just appearing and disappearing around the neighborhood. And it's really just about how John Carpenter can use the widescreen frame to uh, build tension and unnerve you and turn this neighborhood into a, a cavernous, shadowy, scary, unsafe place. And I think that's what makes it so great. But now we're seven sequels later <laughs> that this has all been driven into the ground and I think the only worthwhile one in that whole run really is maybe Halloween H2O, the first time that Jamie Lee Curtis returns to the series after part two and kind of gives Michael a good send-off, I think, but there's no such thing as a send-off when there's money to be made, so they immediately retracted that. Yeah, it's really, by the second one, it is a celebration and a culmination of all the movies in a way. Uh, it's Definitely like taking all the ideas that have been sort of half-assed and trying to bring them not exactly to a full-assed uh, place, but uh, <laughs> I don't know, trying to contend with a lot of them, which I appreciate. But by the time Halloween 2 rolls around, he is like throwing the rule book out and doing exactly what he wants. And it is very different. It is not a, a remake of Halloween 2, the original Halloween 2. I would say that it's, way worse and we see evidence of it being way worse when he is just being in the service of Carpenter's legacy and trying to remake the movie which in the first of the remakes that he did it is super boring in the second half even if you you can have your qualms about the prologue at the beginning which is maybe explaining too much but it is more original and the second half for me is just so bad because it is Sometimes like it feels like scene for scene, shot for shot, like trying to just be the original film condensed into the last 40 minutes of this movie, basically. And it's super boring. That's the big issue with this first one that at least the second one doesn't have. Both of these movies are definitely the most distinctive Halloween films that seem to have a sensibility behind them since the original for better or for worse, he does make it his own. And these are Rob Zombie films. But this first one has this weird balance where he doesn't he doesn't really do, you know, suspense and formal elegance and all the stuff that makes the original Halloween great. But he does have a real reverence for the movie. And he is tasked with kind of relaunching the whole franchise and it ends up with this weird half and half where it is Rob Zombie but he's got to spend time on this origin story and he's got to spend time making what is a really close remake of the original so like you said this is split right down the middle we get the first like 50 minutes of this movie gets us to the point where the original does in like 15 minutes so we get nothing but motives for him. He's This kid is abused and bullied, and he's also just kind of a garden-variety sociopath who kills little animals and 
trying to just make him into a normal serial killer, which I think a lot of people have recognized is totally opposite of just this inexplicable elemental mystery that is Michael Myers. And that's what makes him interesting and scary. And that's that's just gone here. That's just not what he does. And instead, once, you know, he kills everybody and ends up in the mental hospital, he eventually turns into a pretty different Michael Myers, uh, who's like this hulking, stringy haired wrestler, basically played by an actual wrestler, Tyler Maine. Oh, I didn't know he was an actual wrestler. Yeah, he's like the Incredible Hulk version of Michael Myers. And it, which is, again, very different than the sleek and quick and borderline, like, he can teleport kind of Michael Myers. This Michael Myers does not teleport and, wow, he's right behind you. He tears through the fucking wall and there and grabs you and pulls you through. Like, this is that's the kind of Michael Myers that Rob Zombie has created. Again, he wants him to be Leatherface like every other one of his killers. That's what he wants him to be is this big, dumb, hulking the guy who can just smack, who can crush your skull in his hands. And then the se- the whole second half of the movie then, which again, we're almost an hour in, and then all of a sudden we're seeing a really straight-ahead remake of Halloween, but it's like we're watching it on 1.5 speed on Netflix. Like It's all just going by very quickly, and <laughs> we're just now being introduced to all of these main characters who are victims, including Lori, Annie, Linda, just like in the original, but they come in so late into the movie and they have so little personality. And Rob Zombie is such a uh, unskilled writer that it's hard to care anything about any of them. Right. Like you have 40 minutes to do this and like, this is what you're going to focus on. Like Lori making sex jokes with a bagel. (laughs) This is how we're going to get to know her. But I would argue that it is worth watching the first one because it does introduce Laurie and it does introduce, is it Annie? I think the other character who carries over into the second movie, who doesn't really, her her arc is, leads to her death finally in the second movie, which is like this climactic moment in the second movie that is really brutal for the character's so in a way, it's something that does start here and does build. I think a lot of things start here. We get yeah, we get Annie, who's played by Daniel Harris, who plays the little girl in Halloween 4 and 5, which is another callback. What? Yep. Guys, blow your mind. Quiz Kid Marky. Yep. <laughs> Tony, you're out of a job now. Yeah, we don't, we don't need Tony anymore. I'll also just start editing these as we go along. Oh, that would be so nice. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I won't, I won't. I'll take that back. Uh, and her father is Sheriff Brackett, played by Brad Dorif, you know, who's Chucky and uh, a bunch of other, you know, has been in a lot of other horror movies. Yeah. And his whole stable is back. We get, well, I mean, in really small roles, just in this first one, we have Ken Faree again. Danny Trejo shows up. Like you said, his wife is the stripper mom. Even Bill Mosley and Sid Haig from Devil's Rejects make small appearances. So his whole stable is back in that John Waters kind of way again. And I'm, you know, I'm sure it was good work for all of them. I mean, last thing I would add about the first one is don't watch the, this is one of the few movies where you don't want to watch the director's cut because there is this awful scene that was left on the cutting room floor and it should have stayed there and died. It's a really horrible, like sexual assault scene that is just like, why is it in there? Oh, wonderful. Why would anybody need this? 
But I would argue that the Halloween 2 director's cut is pretty worthwhile. Well, I'm glad to hear you say that because I watched the theatrical cut of the first one and then the unrated director's cut of the second one. That's the way to do it. And the first one is already too long. This is another Mm. hour and 50 minute movie. Oh, yeah. All of these are some of the longest slasher movies out there. And it's just, it's too much, especially when this first one gets to the ending, which is this super extended chase sequence. Um, And it's the the first time in a while that it kind of goes off book a little bit, but it all it is is Michael chasing Laurie around and... At this point, we know that she's his sister. He knows it, but she does not, and she never finds out before the movie ends. And the the movie in the first one doesn't pay that off at all, so it doesn't do anything interesting with that. And one thing I've neglected to bring up that's important to the second movie is Dr. Loomis, who was played by uh, Donald Pleasance in the original, and here is Malcolm McDowell in, I think, a inspired bit of casting. Yeah, at least in this movie. Yeah, and I I do feel like he's kind of wasted in this movie too because it doesn't it kind of threatens to do something interesting with their relationship, but in the end it just becomes a remake of the original and that means that Malcolm McDowell is just chasing him around the town all night and nothing comes of that either. But ding ding, enter Halloween 2. Yes, the white the slate is wiped clean. And where he's free to go full Rob Zombie. He's got the origin story out of the way. He's got the remake out of the way. Now he can do whatever he wants with it. Yes, because nobody really gives a shit about the original Halloween 2 all that much. And there really isn't a whole lot to Halloween 2. It is just, which funnily enough, he condenses Halloween 2 into the prologue of this movie where in the first remake, he condenses Halloween 1 into the latter half of the movie, which basically, yeah, the prologue of Halloween 2 is picking up immediately after Halloween 1 ends, which is this really intense scene of like Laurie right after she shoots him in the face. She shot Michael Myers in the face. We saw her shoot him in the face. And now she's wandering down the street just like in a daze. And she's picked up by the policeman, Marky Quiz Kid. Do you remember that guy's name? Well, Sheriff Brackett's the character name, but it's Brad Dorif. Okay, yeah, Sheriff Brackett. And he gets her in the police car, and they have this, like, this is the beginning of what I think a lot of the movie focuses on, which is these really intense body horror. Like, she's thrust into the hospital. She's on, like, a bed and getting, like, wheeled down the hall, and she's just bloody and broken And it's really horrifying to watch. She's just screaming the whole time that I'm going to die, I'm going to die. And there's all these like crazy close-ups of them like sewing her up and stuff. And there's like a horrible like little close-up of like her nail getting like pulled off at one point. That was nasty. It's all this emphasis on what happens after, which I think is sort of at the root of Halloween 2. It's very much conscious of... Something that a lot of horror movies throw out when they get to their sequels, which is this sort of like the final girl made it out. Everybody else died. So she's going to be fine or something. And in this one, it's very much like, no, she's like beaten and broken. And also, as we see through the latter part of the movie, she's broken mentally like we all would by a night where all our friends are killed in front of us and we narrowly escape with our lives. 
Yeah, and you're totally right about the beginning of this movie being kind of a tribute to the original Halloween 2, which takes place almost entirely in a hospital with Laurie there afterwards. And so this seems like it's going to be going in that direction for a while. And just to give context for this whole scene, this ends up being a dream sequence. So Lori is in the hospital, and at the same time, Michael's being driven out in, like, the coroner's van, which hits a cow. Then he wakes up, brutally murders the two guys driving the van. So brutal. Very brutal. When he gets to the hospital, he basically, it's suggested he kills every person there because— Lori starts finding these people dead everywhere in increasingly brutal ways. Oh, but before that, when he first gets out of the body van and cuts the guy's head off, he turns and Michael sees his mother, Sherry Moon Zombie, on a white horse. She's in a white dress and she's got white hair and she's on a white horse. And there's like a ridiculous spotlight coming down from the heavens on her. She's just standing in the middle of the road, and she's got little Michael, like boy Michael, beside her. Yeah, that's a whole thread in this movie that I think is one of the more distinctive things about it, is that it is full of this kind of supernatural dream imagery and these fantasies that Michael has that he's walking around with his mother, which, again— is a reason for Rob Zombie to once again prominently feature his wife, even though she died in the first movie. But no, we get her here like the whole time walking around with little Michael who speaks. And there's even some wilder imagery later on where they're like at this big feast table with these guys with these grotesque pumpkin heads. There's a whole dream world that Michael apparently lives in that there's like maybe like there's an idea that there's like a dream logic that Michael is following. I love that scene where he gets out of the body van for the first time, which it is like. I would argue a good uh, example of what Rob Zombie does and the two pathways that Rob Zombie does, which are these like super brutal, realistic scenes where like the guy is like noticing that his jaw is broken and Michael cuts his head off in a really horrible, realistic way. And all of a sudden there's a ghost, like a ghost on a horse telling Michael, like, it's time, Michael, blah, 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 blah. And that's something that you never see in a Halloween movie. So it is bracing to suddenly have all of this eerie imagery that goes throughout the whole movie. And I think that's probably a big part of what people think of when, who like this movie. And if there's any kind of cult that's built behind it, part of it is behind that whole element because— it's unusual to see stuff like that in a slasher movie, and Rob Zombie's pretty good at that because if there's anything he's good at, it's this image-making. And this is a really good-looking, atmospheric film with a lot of chilling and beautiful images in it. And that's, I think that's the best thing that I can say about it. And it does, it does start with that stuff in this opening scene, which... Again, I want to emphasize this is the director's cut that I watched. I don't think I've ever seen the theatrical cut. But this is the first 25 minutes of the movie that ends with suddenly Lori waking up and it was all like a nightmare. It's pretty wild. That's one-fourth of the entire movie is this opening dream sequence. And yeah, because it spends its time. Like each kill in this movie like takes time mm-hmm. in, in a really brutal way. Like, there's no frivolous, like, Michael 
just whack somebody and they fall over. It's like if there's a nurse to be killed, Michael's going to take his time and like we're going to linger on her. It doesn't matter who it is. There's the guy in the van who's talk who like makes small talk about killing corpses and he brutalizes him. And then there's like a nice lady nurse who we kind of like after some banter and she gets brutally like fucked up just as much. Octavia Spencer, by the way, people will probably recognize her. Right. Yeah. So it was all a dream. It was all a dream. So I want to say that my favorite stretch of the movie is that first 25 minutes because it's just one long set piece. It, you know, we don't got to have to worry necessarily about the dialogue and the characterization. It's just, it's all the goods there. You get to see a, a great demo reel of what Rob Zombie's Halloween can look like. After that, we get a title card that it's two years later. Although I, I think I read that in the theatrical version, it's only one year later, but whatever. And I know this is where things do get rougher for me because. We have Lori, who is clearly going through this, you know, PTSD and is all messed up. Um, she's living with Annie and Sheriff Brackett, so we get all that stuff held over from the first movie. They live in their punky house and their punky clothes. They're all real edgy corn listeners, it feels like. Her trauma has turned her into Rob Zombie's dream girl. Yes. That she she has all the tattoos and the clothing and listens to all the bands that he loves. So she's her and all of her hot young friends have like Alice Cooper posters, black flag t-shirts. They listen to MC5 at work and jam out to it. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, sure, Rob. Yeah, it's a little <laughs> silly. It's pretty silly a lot of the time. And yeah, the the lines are not great. And there's very much like the one girl who is just like, what if I showed my titties right now? What if I did that? And it's just like Rob, Rob Zombie is like, this is how women are. Oh, yeah. And again, regardless of the age, gender, personality of the character, they all speak in these vulgar, dumb sex jokes. They're always grabbing a, a bottle of milk and pretending to jerk it off and rubbing bagels around their tits and that's just that's how people talk in Rob Zombie movies. And I think that that's kind of a bad sign because this, once again, is a very, very long movie and spends a lot of time on Lori's PTSD. And that basically has just lots of her lashing out. These pretty clunky scenes with a therapist uh, played by Margot Kidder, another great casting coup from the, you know, Superman uh, movies and Black Christmas. I, I She was another person I could recognize. And I'm like, who is that? Where did he pull her from? That's right. And it's Margot yeah, Kidder. in Black Christmas. Yeah. A lot of it is given over to that. And she's a typical, terrible movie therapist who just speaks in uh, platitudes or kind of written by a guy who's probably never been to therapy <laughs> and should definitely. Yes, and should go to therapy. But one of the interesting things is they do establish this kind of psychic link between her and Michael, which is something that I believe Halloween 4 and 5 kind of do with Michael's niece, that they have some kind of a psychic link. Right. It's like E.T. Yeah. So she starts seeing his visions also. And that gives us a little more of something to, to hang on to. 
And then the other main thread that we have going on here in, you know, the bulk of the movie before Michael finally arrives back in Haddonfield. Oh, Loomis. Is Dr. Loomis on his book tour. So he's written this exploitative book that's profiteering off the crimes. And we get lots of scenes of him with his agent. Uh, Lots of, it, it sounds like we're on the same page. This is some pretty weak commentary. This is the worst part of the whole movie for me. And I'm like... If you haven't guessed already, I'm a little bit of like a stan, like apologist for this movie, which was really hated on release. And it, it sort of has gained a little bit of a cult following over the years. But I think it, I I just want to skip all the Loomis shit in this because it is just so misguided and silly and just like a teenager wrote it as far as like it being somehow satirical of true crime writing the people at the press conference they're all ready to like jump to the point of like loomis so you caused this to happen right uh or like do you feel responsible for these things and it's like it, it seems like it's not doing a good job of pointing out what maybe he's trying to satirize which is the like exploitative money-grubbing aspect of true crime writing, right? Which is making money and sort of putting a Hollywood spin on something that is very horrible for some people. Yeah, you're right. They're not totally clear about what is so bad about the book in particular and what people are challenging him on. And I think it maybe explains that a little bit later because eventually Laurie picks up the book and somehow that's how she learns that she actually is Michael's sister and was adopted after he killed the rest of his family. So maybe it's that he put that in the book without anyone breaking the news to her, but it seems more like a plot thing. Right, which that's a big moment, yeah. And that's when she finds that out. But no one seems to be upset about that. I don't think that's what they're upset about. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So it's just not very funny, and it's just very easy targets. Although he does go on to a talk show that Weird Al is another guest on, and it's really strange to see Weird Al. so silly. (laughs) I would love to know how he ended up in this movie. Why? And so I guess his arc is supposed to be that eventually he he wants to redeem himself and tries to stop Michael when it becomes clear that he's back. But I don't think this works as a character arc. It doesn't seem to make sense for his character. It's not an interesting place to go with it. And it does not pay off at all in the end, I don't think. Then the third thread we have going here is like Michael's big adventure on his way back to Haddonfield. So we spend a lot of time following him. And I maybe I missed something, but I'm not clear as to how, like they don't really give an explanation as far as what happens to him at the end of the first movie. Everyone's just saying to each other, yeah, whatever happened to his body, man? We never, we never did find it. And they're all like, oh, well. And somehow he ends up super far away and has to walk back and make this journey which i just don't understand like why is he nest now coming <laughs> back how did that. he end up back there and why does he look like rob zombie because doesn't he, he has this big mountain man beard and you actually see his face pretty clearly relatively often in this movie yeah Another another way that Rob Zombie is just like, I do not give a shit about you, John Car- Carpenter. We're going to see his face. Like, I don't care. This is my movie. Like, he's just like all the like tropes and like keystones of the series that are like a big deal. He's just like very flagrantly just like, whatever. There's his face, which I love this portion of the movie. He's just like a Sasquatch walking around. He's like 
again, I do buy that he is something more than human. He's marching around. He feels like Sasquatch or the swamp thing or something. He's just like in the in the woods walking around and just picking off people as he goes. I don't know. Again, I appreciate that about this movie. If you're gonna if you're gonna make a movie where like that is that's the thing about slasher movies. Like the big part of it is the kills. And Rob Zombie puts so much effort into these kills. Sometimes too much effort. Yeah, it is. It does have a, f- a couple of the more brutal murders in this, where he literally just stomps on this guy's head until it's mush. Yeah, he's just smashing his stripper's face into a glass wall for like a long time. So we get that. We get to see him eat a dog pretty graphically, which it was just intercut with Lori. That's one of the ET scenes where Lori's <laughs> eating pizza, eating pizza, and she's like <laughs> gagging on it because she feels that she's eating dog. Or something. Yeah, and that's that's basically the three things that we keep intercutting between until Michael finally, finally ends up back at home and, you know, kills some more people. But, I mean, he's been killing people the whole time, so it's not necessarily like a giant climax. There's a silly Halloween party that they go to, uh, which is just like feels like a Rob Zombie Halloween party. Uh which, I mean, isn't totally frivolous because I like what's going on there with Lori and that it's her trying to be frivolous. It's her, like, she has said fuck you to her therapist for not giving her her medication and stuff like that. And she's just, like, going to go to this party and get fucked up and drunk, even though Halloween is, like, a trigger for her. And it winds up being a bad experience because it is like she's constantly having these flashes of Michael and stuff like that wherever she is. And she can't escape, even though she's just trying to have a good time. And, yeah, they eventually go back home to Lori's house. And it's interesting how this kill is done which with Annie, her friend, who she just got through telling to fuck off, basically, after Annie was, like, her only, like, friend, sort of, who was, like, really, like, there for her and talking to her through a lot of the stuff um, in her past and stuff. And they had both been survivors through the first movie together and stuff like that. But Michael finally goes home and finds Annie in the bathroom and just totally destroys her, like... But we don't see it. We don't see it. Yeah, it's interesting. It it cuts away, which I was like, oh, this is interesting. Because it's not like zombie not to show us something. And I appreciated that it has, it builds suspense in that way. Because you know something horrible happened. He has a vision of his mom basically saying, go ahead, have some fun with her. So it's we're left to imagine exactly what happens in that bathroom. And of course, when Lori gets there, we do get a couple brief, very brief flashbacks to some mayhem, but there's just blood on every inch of the bathroom. Maybe even Rob Zombie can understand the fact that sometimes what you don't see is even worse. By the end, she's naked too, so there's like She's a, naked, yeah. So who knows what they're suggesting there. There's so much emphasis on Annie's death here. I, I know there's like an extended part in the director's cut, which isn't in the theatrical cut, where like, yeah, Lori walks in and has like, just like a crazy breakdown. There's not just like a, like, whoa, you died. I run and then runs out into the woods to get chased by Michael Myers. Like in a usual movie, she is like holding her and like having a, like a horrible moment. Like you would, if you found your best friend dying. And, uh, 
it's followed by a scene where her dad walks in on her and it just screaming and like it lingers on the whole thing. And he's just like, really like he's having a traumatic moment where he what he sees his daughter dead. And then we suddenly get these flashes back to like a childhood home video of her as a little girl. And there's this like kind of Enya sounding uh, song, like music behind it. I think that's what was not in the theatrical version is, him discovering her and this it does seem kind of random that suddenly we're seeing a home video like i guess that was just zombie's way of see he's remembering her as a little girl and that's why he's so upset and yeah we get it but it's not the kind of thing that you usually linger on in a slasher movie so that's probably what got people's attention yeah which i do appreciate that i still think even though there is more development of annie than you usually would have of just like a secondary character who gets killed as like a catalyst for the third act of a slasher movie but that brings us to the climax which basically has laurie and michael hold up in this little shack and finally having this confrontation and dr loomis shows up outside and there's all there's like a SWAT team with helicopters and snipers all around. This is our big climax. And I got to say, I was a little disappointed at this point too, because the movie spends so much time on Lori's journey and trauma. And she kind of just gets reduced again at the end to the final girl running and screaming and trying to just survive. We do get a a thing where she's seeing the visions along with him and uh, she thinks that he's holding her and Loomis is like, no one's holding you, get up. But that's kind of as far as it goes. And then Michael attacks him. We do hear him speak. He finally, he says, Michael is unmasked and looks at Loomis and says, die. Like, so, all right, that was what we had to break his silence for. Yeah, (laughs) is for him just to say die. But okay, so, you know, we hear him. And the difference, there is a difference between the unrated and the theatrical endings. I did actually watch the theatrical ending on YouTube. I actually like that better. Yeah, I could see that. Because I'm trying to remember exactly here, because the theatrical version has Michael stab Loomis to death pretty unambiguously. And I want to say then a sniper shoots Michael and... Emerging from the house then is Laurie wearing his mask. Yes. And before that, yeah, Sniper shoots him. He falls on like farm equipment and it's like skewers him. And Laurie actually gets to stab him. Right. Yeah, I think is like at least satisfying in a cathartic sort of way. And then she walks out with Michael's mask on, which is pretty cool. At least a cool image. And I don't know, communicates a callback to a lot of the other sequel endings, which often the message is always just like, it just never ends. The the evil just continues and it's just been transported to another person now. Uh, there's no escape from it. Lori comes out and she seems like she's possessed in the director's cut and she's just like sort of become Michael Myers. She doesn't have the mask on. And she, she, she like tries to stab Loomis like Michaels Myers would want to stab Loomis. So it's sort of like he's like controlling her. And then she just gets shot by the cops, which I think is really lame. So maybe the main difference is that they both have the same little epilogue. But I think in the unrated version, it's it's suggesting that maybe this is a dying vision of hers. I mean, maybe she survived getting shot. I don't know. It's not totally clear. But she does 
basically Loomis is left maybe alive as opposed to the theatrical version and she's shot going to stab him. See, yeah, I think that's just like Rob going going to a weird place with like the whole science fiction aspect to the whole thing. But I like the theatrical one where she has the mask on and that's it. And then they cut to um, her in the asylum, just a generic like ghostly white asylum. And she sees her mom on the horse and she smiles. It, it just, it just works better. I think to communicate what is pretty simple, which is just like, yeah, she's, She's fucking psycho now. She's probably the new Michael Myers. Yeah, literally, it's like the last shot of Psycho where Norman Bates is grinning into the camera. Yeah. And seems like he's totally been taken over by Mother, and maybe this is all going to just continue. And I think that specifically recalls the ending of Halloween 4. Isn't that where the little girl, his niece, ends up killing her mom at the end? Sorry, spoilers for Halloween 4. Yes, where she has the clown mask on now, and... Loomis is like, oh, God, it's starting again. And then part five totally just, like, retrocons that and and doesn't go with it. But and I think that I was a little underwhelmed just because I was expecting that to be where this went the whole time. Why else would they be establishing this psychic link and everything? And I knew that it happened in the fourth movie. So it did seem like kind of an obvious ending especially once again for us spending so much time with Laurie up to that point. And uh, I think that a lot of that just speaks to Zombie's weaknesses as a writer. And as far as I know, all of his movies so far, he has the sole writing credit. Like, he doesn't want to share that with anybody. Not, not like one person? You don't know anybody in Hollywood that could just just give it a second read, you know? Maybe it's a money thing. Like, you know, he makes low-budget movies, and he wants to be the sole author of them. And not have to start splitting, you know, the royalties and credits with other people. Well, and actually, this is a really interesting thing. Do you know what his next project is that's currently being filmed? No. It is a PG-rated The Munsters movie. Oh, I heard about this. I'm so excited. And he is writing it. So I'm I'm interested to see him go maybe outside of his comfort zone somehow and to see what that's going to look like. Ooh, but now that I think about it, yeah, it's just going to be the writing of <laughs> it's not going to be balanced out by like cathartic kills and like high octane brutal whatnot. Like I don't know what it'll be. Like <laughs> It might just be like him not being funny. It could, it definitely could be. And you'll never guess that his wife is in one of the starring roles. Yeah, which I got to go back again and say Rob Zombie is not funny. That's, <laughs> that's just really the, the thesis of this. But he tries. And so, yeah, that's where it leaves us. And I think that's probably, I, I see the kind of twin poles here of this being an unusually brutal and a very Rob Zombie type movie and the hallucinatory imagery being what draws people to this. Yeah. It's just such an oddity. I would compare it to like the last Jedi or something like that in the way that it's the one that is like going to just throw a lot of people in one way or the other, as far as like what to do with the franchise is concerned. But there's always going to be some people that are just more interested in like, Yoda being like, let's just burn the old Jedi books. 
fuck all that stuff. It's all new now, um, which that's how this one feels a, a lot of the time. It is just for better or worse. He's not stealthy. He's not a shadow anymore. He's going to burst through the walls and it's going to be a lot of corpses in his wake, not just four. And to take that analogy further, you could call these new David Gordon Green Halloween films like The Rise of Skywalker, if this is The Last Jedi. I, I, wanted to, I do want to trash talk those a little because I really think those are awful, awful, lazy, half-assed movies. I'm talking about, uh, I guess it, they just called it Halloween and then Halloween Kills, which was even worse. I don't even know why I watched it. I hated these movies. They're just, they're constantly trying to be funny and are never funny they're half-assed, they're lazy, they're full of insulting fan service. The last one is barely even a movie. It's just a bridge to get to the next one that we know is coming. I hate them. And these movies, the Rob Zombie versions, are uh, they only look better in hindsight because of that. Because there's no vision with these new ones. They don't work on any level. <laughs> they also don't understand what is appealing about the original, yet they find nothing new to bring to it. Those are unwatchable. <laughs> After watching Halloween Kills, I immediately wanted to put on Halloween 2. And for me, this one, I am right there with you on all the weaknesses. Like, this is also a buffet of all the bad things that Rob Zombie does, for sure. But for me, it's the showcase of what he does best, which is just... Let's not fuck around. Like, you want to make a brutal scene? I wish he would make more movies that are this bleak. I think he's actually better at that than this whole, like, kitschy, cartoony thing. I think it's best when this movie is just black as night and just incredibly bleak and just hopeless and just the kills are just brutal and inescapable and just so off-putting. Like, I, I just really appreciate that here. I think he can do that few people can touch like his energy in some of these just like really brutal scenes. All right. So I don't think either of us are going to be unwatching this one, right? Well, I definitely am not. <laughs> no, me neither. Me neither. And soon enough, we'll see what kind of gritty origin story he brings to Eddie Munster. Yes. Can't wait. I don't, I can't think of any Eddie Munster lines that I can tell <laughs> We have to we have to wrap the episode up before Seth is completely shrouded in darkness. I can barely see him. That's how we know the episode is over, is when we can only see the whites of his eyes. <laughs> I start like as a pale ghost, like Sherry Moon Zombie, and then I cloak into darkness and I become the shape. <laughs> Watchables is produced by Tony Scarpetti, hosted by me, Mark Dottavio, and Seth Troyer, with artwork by Micah Krause. You can find Seth and I on Letterboxd under Mark Dottavio and Sloth Troyer. You can also check us out at unwatchablespod.com for links to our Twitter and Instagram, or support us on Patreon for bonus content and to have a say in what we watch. Thanks for listening. Yeah.